0: Welcome back to America Speaks. We are honored today to conclude our 2018 series with a conversation with one of my heroes, Ambassador on World Chowdhury. I have been fortunate to know Ambassador Chowdhury for over ten years now, and this conversation with him today is truly a gift for us all. I want to introduce Ambassador Chowdhury by reading the Global Cooperation Council's introduction to his remarkable career and to give you a full sense of the boundless work he has done to create a world dedicated to peace. Ambassador Chowdhury has devoted many years as an inspirational champion for sustainable peace and development, and ardently advancing the cause of the global movement for the culture of peace that has energized civil society all over the world. As a career diplomat, permanent representative to the United Nations, president of the United Nations Security Council, president of UNICEF Board, UN Undersecretary General, the Senior Special Advisor to the U.N. General Assembly President and recipient of the U Peace Award, UNESCO-Gandhi Global Medal of Culture of Peace, Spirit of the U.N. Award, and University of Massachusetts Boston Chancellor's Medal for Global Leadership for Peace— Ambassador Chowdhury has a wealth of experience in the critical issues of our time, peace, sustainable development, and human rights. Ambassador Chowdhury's legacy and leadership in advancing the best interests of the global community are boldly imprinted in his pioneering initiative in March 2000 as the president of the Security Council that achieved the political and conceptual breakthrough leading to the adoption of the groundbreaking UN Security Council Resolution 1325, in which the Council recognized for the first first time the role and contribution of women in the area of peace and security. He served as ambassador and permanent representative of Bangladesh to the United Nations in New York from 1996 to 2001, and as the Secretary general and high representative of the United Nations responsible for the most vulnerable countries of the world from 2002 to 2007. In 1999, for adoption of the landmark declaration and program of action on a culture of peace. And in 1998, for the proclamation of the International Decade for Culture of Peace and Nonviolence for the Children of the World from 2001 to 2010. Ambassador Chowdhury is a member of the UN High-Level Advisory Group for the Global Study on the 15-Year Implementation of Security Council Resolution 1325 and also one of the 12-member Asia-Pacific Regional Advisory Group on Women, Peace, and Security hosted in Bangkok. He has been the chair of the International Drafting Committee on the Human Rights to Peace, an initiative coordinated from Geneva, and was a founding member of the Board of Trustees of the New York City Peace Museum. Ambassador Chowdhury is the founder of the New York-based global movement for the culture of peace. Ambassador Chowdhury, it truly is a thrill to have you on America Speaks today. We are at a very fragile and vulnerable era in our planet's history. This interview is an opportunity for all of us to learn from you and feel a great sense of inspiration as how we as a global society should be united to work towards the greater good of all people and to promote peace, sustainability, tolerance, and opportunity for each person living today in our very challenging world. I want to begin by asking you if you could go back to your roots. When you were first starting out in your career and what compelled you to become a champion for your country of Bangladesh and for the culture of peace?
1: Thank you, Tish, for this opportunity to speak with you, uh, to talk about my life, my mission, my goal for humanity. I come from a country which itself is very impoverished, very vulnerable to external shocks, have gone through in its own national life through tremendous suffering. It had to go through a bloody liberation struggle to achieve its independence in 1971. At that time, I felt that the birth of a new country, my own homeland, my motherland, is an opportunity for me to expand my inner desire to be of service not only to my people but to the world as a whole. So that prompted me to engage in my own career because I believe that I belong to the diplomatic service of Bangladesh And I believe that gives me an opportunity to connect with the rest of the world. Coincidentally, my government, the new government of Bangladesh in 1972, sent me to the United Nations with the application of its membership. And I was at that time a junior diplomat and I worked with my senior colleagues to promote that objective. And I had many opportunities of seeing what benefits and what exposure will come to my newly born country of Bangladesh to share with the rest of the world and how the people of my country can benefit from its participation with the United Nations at the United Nations as a full member. And as I continued to represent my very young country in the UN I found that unless we speak about the problems that we go through we means all the developing countries particularly the most vulnerable countries like Bangladesh and I found that there we have something to contribute we cannot engage in big global issues like disarmament or nuclear non-proliferation or the political problems engaging the United Nations like the Middle East or Cyprus or the African issues. But we can talk about the basic problems facing a developing world and which can benefit other countries in similar situations. So the population issues, which is a, still continues to be a major problem, High increase in the growth of population became my first love, so to say, of issues at the United Nations. In my own country, I found that the role of women and children is very important in addressing the broader issue of population growth. So I kind of veered towards that direction. I got engaged in child rights issues in a big way. I got engaged in women's rights and women's empowerment. Um, I shared the experience of Bangladesh in microcredit and providing empowerment of women in a big way and thereby benefiting children. So this went on. And then I found that neither women's rights nor children's rights will be possible unless we have sustainable peace in the global context. And that sort of also brought me towards highlighting at the United Nations, this concept of the culture of peace, which was in UNESCO for about 10 years at that time. And I felt that it is high time that that concept, which was a concern of one of the UN system organizations, but needs much bigger and global attention. So I said that I, along with some of my colleague ambassadors who felt the same way, wrote to the UN Secretary General. Who was that at the
0: time? At
1: that time it was Kofi Annan. He just became the Secretary General Mm in 1997. So 31st of July 1997, we wrote that letter to Kofi Annan to create a self standing separate item of agenda of the General Assembly and that was the on first the culture time of peace. That
0: that had reached the General Assembly.
1: Yes. General Assembly discussed it as a sub item of human rights issues. But we felt that the culture of peace is such a powerful concept that it should get a self standing global attention. And we felt more so because the world was coming out of the Cold War and we felt that ending of Cold War provides us a big opportunity to benefit from, firstly, peace dividends, secondly, focusing on the sustainability of peace and thirdly, opportunity for everybody at individual level to contribute to the global peace objectives.
0: And so then three years later, you created and brought to the floor of the Security Council, the United Nations Security Council Resolution 1325. And I think I want to just read what you wrote, because to me it exemplifies the critical understanding and acceptance of what that resolution stands for. Without peace, development... Is impossible and without development peace is not achievable. But without women neither peace nor development is possible. How groundbreaking was this resolution at the time?
1: You know the women's role and contribution in the area of peace and security has been neglected by the Security Council for 55 years of its existence when I raised that issue in the Security Council as the president in March 2000. Before that, the Beijing Women's Conference added to women's agenda their role in peace and security. And we believe that the Women's engagement in the issues of peace and security, which has been always there at the grassroots level, needs to be acknowledged and needs to be added on to the various decision-making processes in the United Nations. So we felt that it is high time. When we were not in the Security Council, I has been advocating with other members of the Council at that time to raise this issue. It was not possible. So many civil society organizations with whom I had worked were championing this cause. And I joined them. And then in January 2000, Bangladesh became a member of the Security Council. And lo and behold, within two months came the opportunity for us to be the president of the council. And I thought this is a big moment of opportunity for me to push that agenda. So I wanted the Security Council to adopt a resolution recognizing women's role in peace and security and also recognizing the need for women's participation at all decision-making levels connected with peace and security. But the resistance of Key members of the Security Council, particularly the permanent members, was so strong, it was not possible for me to have the resolution. But what I call a conceptual and political breakthrough was the adoption of a statement agreed upon by all five, recognizing the fact that peace is inextricably linked with equality between women and men. And then I thought that yes, we have conceptual agreement that we have been able to break through that silence about women's role and contribution in the Security Council. And that engaged all 15 members for eight more months, eight months we needed before we adopted a resolution, a formal resolution called 1325 on 31st of October 2000 under the Presidentship of Namibia which was an ally of Bangladesh working for this objective and finally that resolution has now become an enthusiastic opportunity for women all over the world to be recognized for their role to contribute to the peace and security in the world in 2011 three women awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for their role in promoting peace and security in their country. And that Nobel Peace Prize citation quoted 1325 as an element which encouraged this recognition. And we believe that is the only resolution which has been So specifically mentioned in any Nobel Peace Prize citation and any resolution of the United Nations as a whole. It's a
0: remarkable accomplishment. And I can't help but wonder if you look at what you hope would be the successful result of this initiative. How are we doing?
1: Well, I think in terms of implementation, we fall much short of the expected enthusiasm. Firstly, I believe that one, three, two, five, these four numerals are not just numbers. It is a spirit. It is an enthusiasm. It is an opportunity for women around the world to come together, but they should be joined by men because women's engagement brings equality in the negotiations, in the participation, in the promotion and protection, everything. Their perspective is much more longer term than the perspective of men. Women think of longer term benefits for the society where their children and grandchildren will grow up. That is what is the primary in their mind. While men, after every conflict, they think of power sharing, how their power base will be strengthened how powerful and maybe financially beneficial it will be for them. But women think differently. Mm -hmm. Their perspective, their perceptions are different. Men and women think differently, but they are equal. So that equality was crucial in our initiative for this resolution. And I believe that it would be wonderful if this can permeate the activities both at national and global levels. National level engagement has been not so encouraging, if I may say, mildly, because each country of the United Nations is supposed to prepare a national action plan for implementing 1325 in their own countries. And some have also regional dimensions, and industrialized countries have a global dimensions because their assistance, their programs in developing countries are connected with this implementation process. But maybe only 70 countries after 17 years have done that. And it's a pity that we have slowed down. And so I have been working, advocating, propagating about more national plans. And it's a pity also that even my country, Bangladesh, has not prepared a national plan yet.
0: Can I just wonder whether this inclusion of Resolution 1325 and the respect of it and the adapting of it, did that lend itself to have any impact when the Millennial Development Goals were created? Because it seems to me that they all were directed in a big way towards family life, women's education for girls, health, etc. Well, the
1: 1325 was adopted after the Millennium Summit took place. Mm -hmm. So the declaration was done in September and this resolution was adopted in October. But importantly... And I think this is a late but very welcome development. When the sustainable development goals, which covers the period 2015 to 2030, were adopted, we were lobbying, we means civil society, member states, many of them, were lobbying for a self-standing goal in the sustainable development goals for women's equality and empowerment. And we have, goal number five of the Sustainable Development Goals focusing solely on women's equality and empowerment. And that is a very important development and I believe, yes, it surely has been inspired by 1325.
0: Where do you see women in the international community politically uh, absent the most?
1: Well, I believe that two areas can have very positive and forceful impact. One is, of course, the peace table, because we are talking about women's role and contribution in peace and security. You see even negotiations on Syria or any negotiations of any conflict country, women are basically outside. That even there are some token representation, but they're Real participation is not there. So that is what I believe in 2011, one of the Nobel Peace Prize winners was uh, Lema Boi mm. from Liberia. And she organized to encircle the negotiators, all men, inside a house. And they said, women, surrounded, they said, you will not be allowed to come out unless we agree on a peace treaty. So that shows how women engage in a way to force negotiations in a way that it succeeds. And that was a unique way of achieving a positive peace agreement. But it doesn't end there. Main work comes in the implementation process, and there women have to be involved. Women have to be represented more in the judiciary, maybe more in the police force, so that women's issues get an attention it deserves. I believe that peace table participation is absolutely essential. If we are serious about peace, we must take women's participation more seriously. Otherwise, it will not happen. Women bring in their perspective, their longer-term objectives in the peace treaties. And that is how those peace treaties remain sustainable. Otherwise, within five years, you will find men starting fighting again. So this has happened many times in the past. So we believe that that is an area of importance. But the other area is important is women's representation in the political positions. That is very important. Women have been sidetracked in the political process. The representation of women in the parliaments globally is very low and more so in many of the countries which need that mostly. It has been said time and again that women's participation will have a ripple effect on the society in a big way and that will add quality to the decisions that our parliaments take. And also at the city level, at the regional level, state level, in the judicial system, in the law and order mechanism, everywhere, teaching and other human development-oriented institutions are important. But political participation brings in the added benefit, which we are lacking now, miserably.
0: I want to also go back a bit to civil society because I believe last year you were critical of the exclusion of certain groups who could not participate at the yearly UN Women's Conference. And I want to just talk with you a little bit about that because I think it's fundamental for us to truly accept a lack of elitism in terms of global cooperations?
1: Yes, uh, this is an annual session of the Commission on Status of Women. And uh, I believe that this is the forum that attracts the largest participation of civil society from all parts of the world. And particularly women's organizations, they come from all parts. More than nearly 2,000 people come in and I believe that the intergovernmental process that is the basic foundational thing in the United Nations, member states are the governing dynamo of UN decision making. But we have seen that unless we involve civil society, the grassroots level organizations, nothing will be implemented. We can sit in the ivory tower of the United Nations and decide on global peace and development and human rights, but nothing will percolate at the ground level. So this is very important for civil society organizations, individuals participating in the UN decision-making. I do not mean to say that they will vote along with the member states, but they will be given opportunity to share their thinking, share their ideas, share their perception, so that member states, those who are willing to, can listen to those things and understand the issues much better than what they do as diplomats. Mm -hmm. So that is why there is a big disconnect between the intergovernmental process and the perceptions of civil society organizations. And that is what I am very critical of. You cannot adopt resolutions or decisions which will have a benefit for the society as a whole without the involvement of civil society. And that's a must. And that is a bigger question that UN of tomorrow needs to address. If we want to achieve the sustainable development goals in a meaningful way, civil society must be a part of not only decision-making but also the implementation process which is basically led by the governments.
0: So if we consider this transformation is occurring with the acceptance of women, with the inclusion of women, with the respect for women at all levels of life above and beyond what nation they come from or financial representation, etc. Can we entertain a consideration that there will ever be a woman as the Secretary General of the United Nations?
1: Of course. It is 72 years now since UN was born in 1945. All nine Secretary Generals have been men. It's a shame on the world body that we have not been able to identify a woman to be elected as the Secretary General of the United Nations. Last year, before the last Secretary General was chosen, a number of us, both men and women joined together to campaign for a woman Secretary General. We have done that and last year was particularly a momentous opportunity for the UN to elect one woman because we had six very good woman candidates from different parts of the world. And that was an opportunity for us to go for it. But the even decision-making in the Security Council is so much convoluted by the veto authority of the permanent members. And that constrains an open and forward-looking decision-making. It is always constrained by the national interest of those five countries.
0: Is it considered threat?
1: Well, I believe that if you ask me one single thing which should be done to make the Security Council work better to promote international peace and security, I would say abolish the veto power. Abolition of veto will help us to elect a woman secretary general to elect a secretary general who is free to act in his or her own way, which is not pressurized by the thought that P5 members have a final say in my election.
0: And does it have to be unanimous?
1: The speciality of the veto is that if one country vetoes, it doesn't matter whether the remaining 14 countries vote in favor. Veto is totally squashing the effort. This happened in the past for the election of one of the past secretaries General.
0: Well, you know, I think today we all, general public, civil society, sit in quandary over those that make these big decisions because the effects of where we're at are so critical. And when you look at how perhaps a woman with more self-understanding approach to life not just as a woman, but as a mother, as a wife, and as a daughter, as a sister. You take a look at the world and those that are deciding the direction of our globe under a different set of circumstances. So I'm hopeful, because I think now that this has reared its head, it's not only time, but it just feels vital.
1: Yes, absolutely. We have... Started since uh, 2013 a campaign that following the resolution 1325, we need to do something where member states can decide. They don't have to agree. Individually, they can decide. Four things. One, nominate a woman to be a candidate for Secretary (laughs) General. That nomination should be there. In the past, it was not so. Last time only, we had more women. So, That had been a sort of male-dominated area. And we need to change that mindset.
0: Yeah, because of this incredible opportunity I have of knowing you, Ambassador Chowdhury, I got my antenna up about that. And I had been aware that this was on your mind and you were interested in pursuing this. And I couldn't find it written about anywhere in the press, which is a pity because I think the world should be aware of... The necessity, and I don't know whether any public pressure would have any significant persuasive ability with those five members, but I do feel that we are at a time for women now. where Yes, absolutely.
1: And to add to my first point, there are three more. We say that out of 72 years, 72 presidents of the General Assembly so far in the UN, we had only three women. It's unacceptable. I say to bring an equality, we should elect for next 50 years all <laughs> women presidents of the General Assembly. And then Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, the president of Liberia, and who was also a Nobel Peace Laureate along with Leymah from Liberia. She said at this rate of progress towards women equality will take us 80 years to reach that. And you know the basic issue. We have not yet been able to give women equal pay. For every dollar in the United States that a man gets, women get 80 cents. It is is unacceptable. unacceptable. But a pioneering decision has been taken by Iceland to legislate equal pay for women and men. Only country in the world. By law. And also another wonderful dimension, particularly promoting 1325, has been the lead role that Sweden has taken to introduce or to articulate what they call a feminist foreign policy. That is the only country so far in the world, others are hopefully following that, to say that our foreign policy will not do anything which works against the interest of women. But I would emphasize here that I am proud to be a feminist myself. And I don't believe that feminism means being partial with women or focusing only with women. Feminism means giving equality to everybody, giving equal opportunity to everybody. Feminism is a good policy for humanity as a whole. And I think that is what is very important.
0: We are at a crossroads for those most vulnerable. Can you just close today by giving us your thoughts on the importance of the culture of peace, starting with ourselves?
1: In its 72 years, if the UN has thought about promoting the culture of peace, we would have been in a much better position. Countries, however impoverished they are, However illiterate they are, they will value peace because that is good for them as an individual, as also collectively. So that spirit we have to bring in, energize, empower, transform people to think peace is good for us and that should stay with us individually. I have traveled all parts of the globe and I must say, two things energised me in a big way. One is, of course, the eagerness of the people uh, at the grassroots level of these countries, common people who have no vested interest in anything but leading their life meaningfully for themselves and for their children and their families. They are determined to promote in their lives and try to inculcate the culture of peace. I think... In their humble way, they are so eager for that. The second thing that energized me is also the enthusiasm of women and youth to be engaged meaningfully in developing their countries, their own lives, and the world as a whole. So there is a tremendous eagerness of them to be what we call now global citizens. And... That is to be citizens, not only of your own country, but feel as a part of oneness of humanity.
0: I want to thank you so much for today's conversation. You know, Ambassador Chowdhury, women throughout the world owe you a debt of gratitude. Your lifelong dedication to the culture of peace is reaffirmed by your landmark efforts of securing awareness for the rights of women and girls everywhere. I think that this so eloquently describes what you believe in when you write, Women in particular have a major role to play in promoting the culture of peace in our violence-ridden societies, thereby bringing in lasting peace and reconciliation. While women are often the first victims of armed conflict, they must also and always be recognized as key to the resolution of the conflict. I want to invite our listeners to return for part two of our conversation with Ambassador Chowdhury, where we emphasize the importance of attaining a culture of peace, both within ourselves, our communities, and across our struggling planet. And America Speaks wants to take this opportunity to wish all of you listening a very happy holiday season. And please come back in 2019 for part two of our conversation with Ambassador Chowdhury. If you have protested for anything in the past 18 years, you very well may be in my book, I Protest. Please go to my website, tishlampert.org, that's www.tishlampert.org, and see if you can find yourself in my book. You can also follow me on Twitter, At tishlampert.com. That's at T I S H L A M P E R T C O M. And find me on Instagram, T I S H underscore L A M P E R T underscore O R G. And I want to invite everyone to go to Tish Lampert's America Speaks on Apple Podcasts, where you can find our archived episodes. And once again, I want to thank James Koblenz, Oscar Batista, and Kim Langbacker, without whom this episode would not be possible. And lastly, we would love to hear from you. Please write to us at Podcast at gmail.com and tell us what you thought of today's episode and come back for our next episode of America Speaks. Remember, America Speaks believes every one of us has a story. And a voice.